LA is really where I feel like I've grown up and like I've learned about life, you know, like LA kind of beat me into shape in a good way that I knew I needed. And it's been a hell of a, a roller coaster ride, but I'm still on it. I'm still holding on and still having the best fucking time. I love this city. I love LA. Hello and welcome to Here in LA, Mid City Edition. Today we talk with Scott Sterling. Scott is a journalist, a music lover to the nth degree, and a transplant from Detroit, Rock City. We sat in his mid-city apartment as neighbors bashed on trash cans, kids were a little too loud in the courtyard, and cars were beeping in the alley. All life in the big city, I guess. Scott and I talked about music venues, Coachella, ticket prices, Rhino Records where he works, and as we do, you can hear him slip into his love for his home and native land, which is sweet. So get ready to kick out the jams, Mama Jamas, and welcome Scott Sterling. Hey everybody, I am here in Mid-City with Scott Sterling. Hi. Woo! Hello, hi. Scott, we have known each other for quite a while. We have actually. This is my first time ever being in your apartment. That's insane. And yeah, considering. This, well, it's, it yeah, is what life. it is. It's Los Angeles. We're, we're old men. <laughs> Indeed. We're, we're trying to get into young women's apartments, not each other's. <laughs> Amen to that. I expected more on your walls. This is why. Okay. You work for Rhino Records. Indeed. You've been in the music business for a long, long time. Way too long. I would have thought that you'd have like concert posters or rare ticket stubs. Have you always led a kind of minimalist life? Yes. Yeah, and a big part of that is if I was at home home, if I was in a situation where I felt like this is my home where I live and this is my home, yeah. I'd probably have things out and about more. But um, yeah, I just like to keep it simple. Like I know where everything is. You're waiting so. for the home. Yeah, yeah. How long have you been in this apartment? I've only been here for five years. <laughs> Which I know in LA time, it's like dog years. Like. You know what's funny though? People, ask, people talk trash about my place all the time. They're like, why don't you clean up that? Clean up that. Clean up that. And I'm, I think I have the same mindset. I am here temporarily. Yeah. Even though I've been there for 22 right. years, it still feels like this is a stepping stone. And another reason why this place might be a little minimal is the last place I was in before this one, which was maybe a mile from this spot. I'd been there for 18 years. Oh. And after 18 years, I was legally evicted on like a funky loophole that they sort of worked out mm. where they could legally evict me without it being like a bad thing or I didn't pay. Or, right. And so like you were saying... It never feels permanent. After 18 years of living above people that I thought I knew that treated me like family and vice versa, I was told in no uncertain terms I had to get the fuck out. Wow. We were here in Mid-City. Correct. Was that Mid-City as well? Yes, it was. So you've lived in Mid-City since uh, the since, previous century. Yeah, I got here in actually the year 2000. In the year 2000. You know. Well, Scott Sterling, I'm so happy to be talking with you and sharing you with my, my listeners because you are a gem of L.A. Thank you. Uh, rich people, you should be just letting Scott Sterling uh, babysit your mansions, uh, maybe the granny house in the back of the Hollywood Hills. I can't promise he won't throw any parties because he is a DJ. He'll probably throw great parties. parties. Uh-oh, he's reaching for a... Uh, oh, 
These guys. I thought you were reaching <laughs> for your, your ones and twos. <laughs> uh, okay, Scott Sterling. We first talked to each other when you worked for the LA Weekly. Yes. You somehow... Somebody nominated me to be one of the 100 people that year that LA Weekly used to feature 100 people every year. What? What? Me? Yeah. Did, you, did you say that when you got the assignment? Who the hell is this fool? Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was the era. It was, you know, I was working at the LA Weekly, kind of. I was a stringer. I was just like, you know, freelance. As we all are. Ah, I was just freelance for the LA Weekly at the time, and there's like, yeah, there's a guy Tony Pierce, you, you know, websites, bus blog, blah blah blah. Oh my god, internet, cool, whatever. And yeah, we chatted, and it was cool. And I was a byline in the LA Weekly, which was always exciting. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was the beginning of an odyssey that has lasted now more than a decade. Uh, LA Weekly was your first LA entry into journalism? Oh no, 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 no. There's the fun history there. My okay. first foray into LA journalism came in 1998. I was still in Detroit, desperate to get the hell out of Dodge, as much as I love my city, the greatest city in the world. It was time for me to leave. I had to go out and spread my wings. I had done everything I could possibly do in Detroit a couple times over. I had to go. Mm -hmm. and I was like, How old were you? Ah, God, I was way too old to be like having those kind of youthful indiscretions. But I was like 30. Isn't it funny? We look back because we do feel really old at yeah. 30 sometimes. Oh, man. I felt like I was 100. Mm -hmm. And I just remember feeling like I can't believe I'm like finally striking out on my own at this old grandfatherly age. But I yeah. think I can make something happen. Was L.A. always in your... Uh... Never. That's the funny thing. I was always the New York guy. Always. Oh. L.A. was always the plastic bullshit city I would never go to. Huh. I was in Detroit doing my thing. A lot of journalistic editorial type situations that were whatever. And mm -hmm. I had this opportunity to come to Los Angeles to work for a magazine called Sweater. Sweater. The infamous Sweater. I don't know anything yeah. about this Sweater. Is, this is the twisted, sordid history of Scott T. <laughs> Sterling live. We're going to take you all the way back to 1998. And rave and dance culture were really hitting the mainstream in a really, really big way. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people didn't know much about it. And at the time, uh, Raygun Magazine in Los Angeles was a very, very big deal. Did, did read Raygun for Ray sure. Raygun was such a big deal that they were being, like, people were throwing money at them to start other titles. And among these titles was a magazine called Sweater that was going to be aimed at the rave culture of America. And by a really strange twist of fate, um, I was invited to, if I moved to L.A., I could be an associate editor of Sweater Magazine working in the offices of Raygun Magazine. Oh. So, of course, you know, I'm this hayseed coming out of Detroit City. Mm -hmm. I was like, I will be there. Raygun was uh, west side, right? Way west side. Santa Monica on Santa Monica Boulevard. Mm -hmm. uh, when I came out for the interview, they took me to Hugo's for brunch. <laughs> it was my first time in L.A., my first brunch. The people from Raygun Magazine are taking me to this hipster spot. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited. We go and we sit down. We're not there for five minutes when the place just goes silent and oddly cold. I look up. Who walks in? It's Jennifer Aniston with Tate Donovan and uh, Eric Stoltz all together. Wow. In 1998. So, you know, I mean, huh. Rachel, friends. Right. It was like I couldn't believe my eyes. I looked to my left, and who's sitting by himself looking kind of peevish and reading a newspaper and eating eggs 
but Brendan Fraser. How about that? And so this is my first LA experience. And so at that point, I'm like, look, guys, whatever you're selling, I'm buying. <laughs> I'm in. If this is how life is out here, let's fucking go. I was in. Okay, so time goes on, and you end up at Metro Mix, which is <laughs> the young person's version of the LA Times. Yeah, mm. of the LA Times is entertainment section, right? Um, and that's where we physically met. Right, for the that's first where we time. really met. And I mean, this was a murderer's row of young journalists, and we knew it at the time. And <laughs> God bless and shout out Deborah Vankin. Mm-hmm. If you don't know who Deborah Vankin is. Get to know Deborah Vank. Deb is still writing for the LA Times. Of course Times. she is. <laughs> uh, Legend. Mostly arts and culture. Legend. Absolutely. I so, recently saw her. She was uh, chatting with LL Cool J at the Basquiat exhibit. I saw that picture. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a video. Yes, yeah, a video. It was a little video, video. clip. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, she assembled all of us. Uh, quickly, we're yeah. going to leave some people out. But you want to name some names? I mean, let's start with the, the legend herself, Allie Ward. Allie Ward, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, allergies, <laughs> dude. This place, this place was so deep. Yeah. That my intern was Katie Bain. What? Do we not remember my interns? My initial interns at Metro Mix, ladies and gentlemen. To my left, I had Katie Bain. To my right, hold I on, had. Katie Bain is now the dance editor of Billboard magazine. Thank you very much. And I think she's been that for a couple of years now. Representing, she does great work. She does fantastic journalism. She was in our episode about uh, uh, Beachwood. Yeah. So on my left, I have Katie Bain, and on my right, I have Allie Miller. Allie Miller. These are my interns, people. Damn. (laughs) So we were working with. Did Deb just deliver these beautiful young ladies to you? A hundred percent. Wow. She surrounded me with. (laughs) And and. They both worked their tail off. That was the thing is we all were just like at the time, because I think back, we were all just like these kind of scrappy trying to make it. I mean, Allie was working at LA Weekly. I was kind of working at LA Weekly. We were all kind of doing our own thing. We were all super hungry and just like, we're going to kill anything that gets in our way yeah. of success. We're yeah. going to make something happen. This is a huge opportunity. We all know it. Let's just destroy everything mm-hmm. in our path. Let's just go. <laughs> and I just... The confidence, I can remember the first introductory, like there's like a press conference at LA Times in a big conference room and we're up on a stage like me and, and Allie and Deborah, and there's all these people and there's cameras and they're just giving us microphones and I am just talking my talk. I'm just like, it's like this. <laughs> we are coming and we are coming hard and this is Los Angeles. This is where it's, people are cheering and applauding. And I'm just looking around like, oh, yeah, we're doing this. It was a very powerful feeling. I don't think the LA Times appreciated one bit. They never did. What you guys were doing And they never really fully gave us the opportunity to, like, spread our wings in the way that we could. We just scraped the surface, which is why it was so important to me and to us when the people that did recognize and gave us those. The only reason I got to go to Prince's house that night was because Ann Powers, who was the pop critic at the time, was like, this guy. He is busting his ass, and you are not recognizing him at all. I could go to this thing, but I'm giving this credential to Scott T. Sterling. So I didn't know that was the backstory. Okay, so yes. hold on. That was Ann, so, that was Ann Powers. God bless you, Ann Powers. In Alabama now, right? I believe so, yes. Uh, okay, so Metro Mix came out once a week? 
Every week, yeah. Once a week as a little supplement. A free freebie. But it it also was a standalone in a, in a box right next to the LA Weekly. Absolutely. And there was a, a great website where you guys talked about every single club, venue, all that stuff. But you only really had like one and a half offices. There was one office for editorial proper mm-hmm. where every all of those names were for the most part. And then there was across the hall another small office with... Kind of business stuff going on, right? There. Jesse. It, it it was very very tiny. So for Ann Powers, who I, did she take the 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 torch from Robert Hilburn? I, I believe he was still there at the time. Maybe he she. I, I'm not sure that backstory. But yeah. she was the e- either she he handed it to her right. or there was one other person temporarily right. who then handed it over to her um, as music critic. Yes, and um, for her to say. I'd like not to go visit Prince. She said there was something else going on or whatever. I don't know what she just was like. And, she's like, this is your assignment. And I'm not going to give it to anybody else in the, the music department of <laughs> yeah. the, the music desk of, yeah, she of literally, LA Times proper. Yeah. I'm going to go upstairs to the kids in that little tiny room. How did she know of you? I don't even know, to be honest, unless she'd read or seen something. I have no idea. But you picked the right man. I would like to think so. Okay. So is this his Bel Air house that he was renting from uh, Carlos Boozer. Do you know this story? I believe so. The place he painted all purple and yeah. had to like paint back. This was in Beverly Hills. The address was 777. Um, I had to go through like, it was a gated community back in Beverly Hills. Uh-huh. And it was just this big, sprawling, really nice house that he was living in. And yeah, it was, it's still the, the greatest night of my professional life. Okay. I spent the night at Prince's house. I, I watched him and his band play live three separate sets over the course of the night. I saw him play things he never played before. Like, you know, it's the dream. Like, the dream came true. Let's backpedal just Please. a tiny bit. She hands, she hands you the assignment. You call the number to get the address. And what do they say? Come at midnight? Come oh, it's at- one of those, you know, like you had to go to this place and go to that place. And there was a checkpoint getting up to the house. And then you get to the house and it's, you know, you and the selected other journalists. There was a handful of people there. Um, I, I remember for some strange reason, Anita Baker was there. <laughs> she was just there. Did he ever record with her? Uh, no, I know that they were tight and friendly. They had so a lot they, of... So she was just there to She watch. was just there to, you know, check out Prince. Um, and wow. yeah, he... You know, there was a lot of people there, and I started talking, and there were musicians, and we're all hanging out, and, you know, every, uh, he would come out, and he'd give, like, a look, and then him and the musicians would go in the basement, and so we'd all follow. There was the, a basement in this yeah, house. Yeah, a big, beautiful basement, and that's where they had set up this, like, a sound stage, and he'd play, mm-hmm. and so we just follow him to the basement, and they just pick up instruments and start playing, and you're just like, okay. And what then, era Prince was this? This was right when he released the three albums all at the same time. It was, like, the Prince album, the... Musicology? No, 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 no. It was uh, Lotus Flower. Oh. The Trilogy. Yes. And there was the deal with Target. And it was that whole, it was like 2009, I believe. So he had at least 100 songs there. Oh, yeah. And I mean, he was, it was a covers night. You know, it was the night he played Frankenstein by Edgar Winter Group. <laughs> what? It was the night he did uh, The Cars, Just What I Needed. Well, uh, Frankenstein, the, the 12-minute long? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was, they were not messing around. That night they had a guy on harmonica from France who someone told me was basically the Jimi Hendrix of the harmonica. <laughs> Never seen him before or since, but he was there that night playing in this little like ragtag band that Prince put together for this event. Did he live up to it? Oh, absolutely. 
I mean, it was, you know, I mean, because Prince doesn't play with anybody right. who's less than transcendental. Yeah. So it was just one of those nights of just being like surrounded in just the best music. Mm-hmm. And then they would stop playing and we'd all go up to the kitchen and there was like a fleet of chefs in this big circular kitchen. And they would just be like, what do you want? And like, what do you got? Well, what do you want? And they're just like <laughs> making like hand rolls and sushi and sandwiches and just, huh. you know, and maybe like an hour, two hours go by and then. Prince would give that look. Like I was talking to one of the backup singers, this one, we were just chatting. She's like, oh. I was like, what happened? She's like, we got the look. And then they all go back in the basement. So we all follow back. And this is like four in the morning at this point. Like the were you third, tired? Oh, no. I was. <laughs> it could have been four in the afternoon. But at this point, there was like maybe 12 people left. But we were like, and they. Oh, people had left. Oh, completely. People could not hang. And right. so. Those of us who stayed were gifted with more music. And, because these were mostly journalists. There was no drugs to keep people awake? There was no alcohol or drugs. A lot of sugar. Oh, uh, cakes and candies? Cakes, yeah, because the one thing I saw Prince eat was the biggest slice of red velvet cake. Like, ginormous. And he was eating that thing like it was his job. <laughs> it was amazing. It's true. Like, that man loved his sweets. Yeah, it was, it was all, like, very wholesome. Yeah. But, you know... Three, four in the morning, people get tired, people leave. Yeah. Prince doesn't sleep or did not sleep or get tired. And so we just kept going. I remember the last set, they came out with a bunch of staple singers classics, really? just like really quiet and just really nice. And like, wow. you know, the sun's coming up. It was freaking incredible. Do you think there's a recording of that night? Did, did, is he the- I would like to think so. Yeah. I mean, at least that first set, which was just, I mean, the cars, Edgar Winter, like they were just. <laughs> ripping through some music like aggressively you, you also saw one of prince's last concerts in la oh yeah the last concert in la that was the last yeah, one the four hour extravaganza with the uh, third eye girl yeah yeah it uh goes down in his longest concert in his history at the palladium at the palladium i want to say it was right around this time it was march something yeah, it was uh yeah 2015 only reason i know is i took a picture of it Right. Because I had a chance to go, and I didn't. Oh, man. That was, a, that was another night where people were, like, leaving, and just, like, he just kept going and going and going and going. Yeah. And to this day, people are like, wait, he, like, go look at the set list. Like, it, it basically didn't end until it had to end. It was, like, four hours. It was incredible. The woman next to me had her own tambourine. She pulled it out of her purse. I'll never forget it. We were right on the rail at the very front of the Palladium, and she looked at me and pulled her tambourine out, and I was like, I'm in the right spot. Was that the best Prince show you'd seen? I mean, it's hard to say. Right. You know, I saw the birthday concert in Detroit in 1986. Mm-hmm. I seen some shit with Prince. You know, he, was, he kicked off the Purple Rain tour in Detroit for seven nights. I was there for four of those seven nights. Whoa. Like, the ushers knew me by the... Like, I was up in it. I you was, were a teenager. I was I mean, a kid, man. We spent the night for those tickets. Back when people could do that. That's what I'm saying. What was the record store that you stood out in front of? Uh, all of them. <laughs> I mean, there was different stores for different applications. Um, there was a big department store called Hudson's mm-hmm. that would sell tickets. Those were always fun because, you know, you're in a mall, you know, department store, people running through clothing, racks flying. Yeah. Yeah, we used to go to all. I mean, if there were basically, though, we would go to the box office because if you went to the box office, you got the best tickets. Uh-huh. Here's a quickie, a freebie. The year is 1985. Depeche Mode is coming to Detroit, Michigan for the very first time. They've never set foot in Michigan. Me and my friend Tom go to the Royal Lake Music Theater, spend the night in the snow, 
wait for the box office to open. It opens, and they sell us front row center seats for Depeche Mode's first show ever in the state of Michigan. And we were there. 85, is this uh, People Are People? Uh, the album was Some Great Reward. They were, they were touring behind mm. was the studio record. Yes. It was that following summer. And yeah, we had front row. So we were little celebrities. Um, I hit Martin Gore in the face with a gummy bracelet when he came down to sing Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, we were a mess back then. Did you go to this fun. most recent uh, Depeche Mode show? I was just there. It was very, that? very emotional. It was, was it? Fantastic. Because they gave love to their oh, fallen brother. Oh, of course. Brother. Yeah. And it's, you know, Depeche Mode is a band much like The Cure. It's, it's been going on and it's so much deeper and longer than a lot of people realize. And for those of us who've been down since the old days, mm-hmm. it's a lot. You know, you've been through a lot with these people. So it's, it's, uh, it was amazing. I feel this way about the Scorpions, too. That those guys are secretly 100 years old. Oh, <laughs> not even secretly. <laughs> yeah. Another reason I love you, Scott Sterling, even though you're from the Motor City, even though you are undeniably black, 100%. You love all kinds of music. They Detroit, that's Detroit. That's Detroit. That's my brother. That's my family. It's just, we were, Detroit is a music city and it's, music is a big deal. Colorblind. Like, very much so. I mean, it's just, it's very blue collar. It's very like, if you can rock the crowd, you're good. If you can't, you're not. That's where the whole kick out the jams came from. Is that these, yeah, these bands would come to town and just kind of, and Wayne Kramer's like, yo, kick out the jams, motherfucker. If you're not bringing it, get the fuck off the stage. That's a Detroit mentality. I think that's a Midwestern thing. It's too. very much a Midwestern thing. That, that, it's very much that a Midwestern. We are thing. not here for the phony baloney. Oh, you got to bring, it's got to be it, all substance. It, it, so on one hand, it's like we've got our BS detectors up. Right. But once you've passed the test, then it's we are all in. Forever. The loyalty is very, want. very deep. And as right. far as the colorblind thing, we were also very blessed to have a DJ by the name of the Electrifying Mojo, who was the biggest, most popular black DJ in Detroit overnight. What station? WJLB. He moved around. He was on all kinds of stations because he was one of those kinds of DJs. <laughs> um, <laughs> WGPR, the, the original. Is, um, isn't it crazy? The best people yeah. couldn't keep jobs yeah, at but radio you know, stations. He was the overnight guy, and he played like at midnight, and he had this whole... He, he would weave a tapestry with his words and his music. Yeah. And his soundtrack was very eclectic. He was black. He was playing to a very black crowd. So you'd be cruising on a Friday night down Jefferson and every car is tuned to Mojo and he would play the entire live version of Peter Frampton's Do You Feel Like We Do? <laughs> Which is, you know, 15 plus minutes. Yeah. And he'd rock the whole thing. And he'd kind of mix in and talk over it in that voice, you know, in Detroit, the mothership is landing. And, you know, but it's like you had... Detroit, black Detroit, like grooving to Peter Frampton. The same with Kraftwerk and the B-52s, who actually he loved so much, they came to the station and did a live interview with Mojo on the air. Wow. And if you, talk to, if you talk to Fred Schneider, like I have once, uh-huh. he will tell you that the Talking Heads foray into black music was all predicated on the B-52s and their crossing over into the black world with Mesopotamia. Hmm. Yes, I interviewed Fred Schneider, and he told me some very interesting stories. Did Black Detroit also embrace Bob Seger? It's a different vibe, mm-hmm. because 
if you talk to black people from Detroit of a certain age, they will surprise you mm-hmm. with their knowledge. And but it wasn't a, a, like a hanging out thing. You yeah. know, if I was going to see a Bob Seger show back in the day, I was the only black face. You know, <laughs> so there was definitely that era growing up. Right. You know, when I first got into music. It was all rock and roll. I'd go to these shows, and it was like a big deal to be the black kid at the rock show. Yeah. You know, and then it became the black kid at the new wave show, and then the black kid at the punk show. And mm-hmm. after a while, you're just the black kid. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever you go, that was always kind of the thing. And so you just kind of roll with it. But it was always a thing. You Once know? you moved to L.A., though, you, you weren't the only black person in the crowd. No. No, it's but it's which LA's, we have to give love to LA for. Oh, we got to give LA love for all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think you took me to my first Morrissey show. Wow, that's right. That which was, that was a again, crazy weekend. Ha, he has a far different audience in LA <laughs> yeah. than he does anywhere else. Yeah. In that, I would say it's the majority. It's Latino in the in that audience, and they might be his biggest audience. And it's you know it's the connection. I mean, when Depeche Mode is really like 1988-89 era Depeche Mode. And they'd come to Detroit, there'd be a lot of black kids. And it became kind of a thing. And uh, Face Magazine came to town and took Depeche Mode to the Music Institute, where all these black kids were like, oh my God, Depeche Mode. And it was like a big deal back then. But it's, you can connect with, it's the words. It's mm-hmm. the same with the Smiths. Like, I love the Smiths. Yeah. You know, we waited for the Smiths to show up on the Queen is Dead tour. We met Morris. He met the whole band, got their autographs. Morrissey was the coolest of them all. Really? He was super fun and funny and had jokes and he kissed all the girls and he was very charming and like What? We had nothing I have nothing but good things to say about him in that instance. Yeah. Matter of fact, that night it was Johnny Marr who left us all a little disappointed. Oh. And now he's like the nicest guy in the world. Right. So things change. So it was but it was always the lyrics. It was always those words that mm-hmm. it was like Depeche Mode, like when you listen to those words, like Martin Gore has things to say and he said them in really eloquent ways that you can hear. Robert Smith is another one, a very eloquent way with words. And if you hear it, you hear it. If you don't, you don't. But those of us that hear it, we really hear it. Robert Smith might be the unicorn, though, because not only can he write these great words, but he jams the long songs yeah. in a totally different way yeah, here's another than, band than Frampton yeah. and, and Frankenstein. These aren't, these aren't rock and roll, shake my head right. solos. <laughs> yeah. These are thoughtful yeah. musical pieces. Oh, he's another one. He surrounds himself with incredible musicians, and they, you know, there is a definite, there's a definite Grateful Dead quality to the Cure that is yeah. overlooked by a lot of people. I had never thought of this. It's it's true. When you really another another band, and I love Rob, Robert Smith because he understands his fans. Like we are so into all of it. The sprawl, the drama, the mess. We love it. Yeah. And he understands that. And so he gives you everything. You go see The Cure. He's going to play. They're going to play for three hours. Right. You know, and you're going to get every era and every aspect. And they're just going to go off on these crazy spaced out jams. And you just roll with it. You know, there's that Grateful Dead quality to it. There's kind of that Flaming Lips kind of surreality, absurdity to it. Yeah, The Cure is incredible. Above you on your wall heater is a Grateful Dead steal your face. Yeah, indeed. Had you did you get to see the first uh, version the pre the, the pre the, the death of uh, <laughs> yeah, the closest I ever came to an actual Grateful Dead show was uh, Chicago '95 Soldier Field lot. yeah we were in the parking lot of Soldier Field huh for reasons dude I, I was parking lot <laughs> Oakland uh, yeah. New Year's Eve '89 uh, yeah '85 it, it was amazing people don't understand yeah not only hugely popular yeah. But those fans, oh. 
those fans. And so, no, you don't always get to go in. Yeah. Which is perfectly fine because the yeah. parking lot is a trip on its own. I mean, because we were there for, there was a big uh, DJ event we had driven, driven from Detroit for, but there was also the Dead Show. And I had friends in my circle that crossed those lines. Shout out my man, Tim Morgan. How you feeling? <laughs> and uh, yeah, we ended up in the Grateful Dead parking lot and it was an experience I'll never forget. Yeah. It was fantastic. You know, the Dead musically came to me in a really kind of sideways way. But once I connected, like I get it and I'm into it. But I came in like kind of the, the, the back door, you know, like Shakedown Street was my first favorite Grateful Dead song. How's that the back door? It's people call it disco dead uh-huh. it's when they were kind of in there like let's try to have a little hit era yeah and, and shakedown street the track he's got this it's like lie it's like disco rock it's just you you can spin it like at a party right <laughs> if you mix it in the right application it's got a little beat have you, to have it. you done this at a party before oh yeah i mean and djs have like actually done remixes of this track and because huh. you know disco dead it's got this little like disco beat to it really and uh and I was like, I love that Shakedown Street song. And then I listened to the rest of the album, and then I kind of explored, and then I've sort of like, oh, the dead. You know, like, I, I feel like I understand it. I'm not a full-fledged, like, deadhead, but I, I appreciate it, and I really enjoy the Grateful Dead. And I, I love the culture and community. It's incredible. Yes. It's absolutely incredible. I love it. I love it. Because you've been to... Hundreds or maybe thousands of concerts. Yeah, somewhere in there. Like, and, way too many. Like, and so you can tell the nuances between one crowd and another. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Who who brought the wildest crowd? Wildest? Because for me, it was Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, those Rage shows were insane. At the Palladium. Did you go to the Palladium shows For me, all? it was they were in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And it was always, like, an insane... It was, like, Rage Against the Machine plus Wu-Tang Clan plus, you know, like... yeah. It was always, there was the night with uh, Atari Teenage Riot and Gangstar, you know, Damn. like incredible lineups and just the energy in the shows and people were just, but I mean the wildest, yeah, yeah, probably, a, probably Nine Inch Nails in their club era, Huh. Nine Inch Nails touring behind Pretty Hate Machine, mm-hmm. playing like St. Andrew's Hall and like they had sold way too many tickets. There's bodies, bodies, bodies. And we were up on the balcony on the edge. And we see this guy, and we're like, oh, he's going to do it. He's going to fucking do it. He stage dives from, like, the upper, like, like 25, 30 feet oh into this mass of people. The whole place holds, like, 1,000 people. Yeah. There's at least 12, 1,300 people crammed in this joint. But, yeah, he stage dove into all those people. Also, were the first person to tell me about the weekend. Yeah, he's you know he's not L.A. <laughs> no, no, no. He's, he's... No, 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 what I'm saying is, he recently. Well, first of all, I give you props for being a tastemaker. Thank you, you generally, if people pay attention to your social media, and you people could find. Do, is your is your Facebook uh, open to the public? Yeah, all that stuff is Facebook, okay. Instagram, Twitter, all that nonsense. <laughs> if if you follow this man, you will learn about music, both old and new. And you taught me about the weekend, and you were like, Tony, all he's doing is putting out cassettes and free MP3s, and he's going to be the next big thing. Fa- fast forward <laughs> to, I think, two months ago, 
He's playing SoFi Stadium. Uh, well, actually, he played it earlier than that, but it was on Apple TV, Apple Plus. Like, this is how they're getting subscribers, is the guy that you knew about when he was giving it away, literally. It was free. He was, he was a genius from day one. I, I, it's something I've somehow gleaned at, from childhood. I don't know. I, I would like to think it's a sixth sense. I think it's just having the ear. If you hear it, you hear it. You know, like we recently lost the legend Seymour Stein and Seymour Stein could absolutely hear it. Sire Records. Sire, the man, you know, he heard Ramones was the first to recognize. He also heard Madonna, like the breath, you know, like he just had that ear. Talking uh, Heads, The Replacements. I mean, insane, the guy. Just insane, insane, insane music. Mm-hmm. Like, I aspire to be like that to if I hear it or if I feel it with The weekend, it was immediate. That first House of Balloons mixtape, it was free. But for me, this free mixtape out of Toronto, Canada was the best album of the year for me. Mm-hmm. It was this R&B, but it was a different take on R&B. It was still really black, but it was really broad. Mm-hmm. He sampled Susie and the Banshees. Nobody <laughs> sampled Susie and the Banshees. Like It was just all these little things, the aesthetic. You never saw his face. The music, the lyrics, like what was happening. And it just mirrored a certain time in my life. And so those first three mixtapes... House of Balloons, Echoes. <laughs> like those, th- those mixtapes, literally, like I lived with each one of them. And with, you were just like, this, there was no way that what he was doing was not going to be ginormous. If you, Did you, you see this evolution, though? Absolutely. Did you think he'd be selling out football stadiums? I knew he was going to. I'm like, this guy can be as big as he wants to be. Because he, he, he was only giving his music away for free. Right. And then when he started touring... He would sell out any place he played immediately. I remember him playing the Hollywood Bowl, headlining. Yeah. And I think he had maybe one official album out at the time, but it was like packed. There's like teenage <laughs> girls singing these horrible lyrics at the top of their lungs. Like the Beyonce remix, if you know, you know. Like hardcore <laughs> stuff. And I'm looking at these little blonde girls just putting their heart and soul into these. And you're like, yeah, this dude's going to be, you know. He, long before everybody else got it, again, it's the fans. The fan, And he saw that early on. It's just like him and the fans. It's me and you up here. Mm-hmm. And we just rode with him. And he just got bigger. And we just kept riding with him. And here we are. Like that dude. Did you go to any of these SoFi shows? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was at the one that they had to stop because his voice went out. Right. I was there. I was so ready. But him having to come back actually made it better. Those shows were fantastic. The production, incredible. I mean, everything about it. Like he is a genius musically. And his business acumen is next level. Is, is that football stadium a decent place to see a show? Yeah, when you finally kind of get in and get settled and then things get going, yes. Okay. It's getting in and getting out like any large show, but it's, they're still really young in their infancy. Case in point, the night that the show had to stop after five minutes. Mm. We're a new stadium, a lot's going on. The one thing we're probably not prepared for is this gigantic sold-out show to meet to stop after five minutes and suddenly, what do we do? Right. They were caught with their pants down. It didn't look good. But, you know, they, it was cool. You know, we all kind of worked together. It never got dangerous. But there were moments where you could kind of feel it leaning. Yes. You know, people being herded into a corridor and then, like, the pushing. We made it out. So they're still working the kinks out. But it's a lot over there. It's a lot. I love it, but it's a lot. I was at a Marilyn Manson show at the Forum many moons ago. I think it was 94. The old school I think it was, was 94, 95. 
and uh, Manson was wearing these really, really high heels that he broke his ankle on, and they had to end the show. Right. And this was Monster Magnet opening. Oh, Cole, dude. <laughs> and Cole and Courtney was fighting right. with Pete. Manson. Pete, yeah. And, uh, and Manson. So it was a wide variety of people. You had the Riot Girls. You had the, yeah. the young, long-haired kids for Monster Magnet who were fantastic. Right. Oh, yeah. And then you had whoever you have for right. Manson who was at the top of his game at yeah, that time. Biggest one of the biggest rock stars in the country. And when you have to end the show early, right. there's a lot of energy. That's what I'm saying. And, um, and people are pissed. Very. And you don't always trust the man on the mic who says, no. in fact, we didn't get refunds for this show. Right. Right. You know, because we'd seen most of his set. But at the weekend, you're, you you got all dolled up. The, the kids all got dolled up. Oh, yeah, up. they did. <laughs> they went out to Inglewood. Yeah. Was there an opener? Uh, it was uh, Mike Dean, who's the producer, engineer. He's a big dude. He's uh, from Houston. He's a Is big he a Sonic. No, he's a, he's a producer. Uh-huh. He, uh, if you look up Mike Dean, he's a big deal in the engineering world. Uh, Kanye relied on him forever. Uh-huh. Like a lot of guys rely on him for sound. He's a big sound guy. And so he, he plays the piano? Was he He doing? opens and does this really kind of cool, sort of John Carpenter-esque, kind of like synth, pulsy, like soundtrack of the He's fog. He's just a vibe type. guy. Yeah, just Live. vibes, vibes. Yeah, just okay. vibes. Yeah. So vibe guy shows up, gets you in the mood, everybody's pumped, everybody then, wants uh, to see uh, the then weekend. K, then Kate comes out. And Kate Trinata, you know, Canada DJ, really, really good, deep. You know, he's got energy really pumped. Weekend comes out, opening, awesome, gasoline, everybody's going. He goes to sing. He kind of looks funny. He kind of stops. And then he's just like, hey, you guys, I just, he just stops everything. And he's like, I'm really sorry, but I literally, I try to sing and nothing comes out. Wow. And you could, you, you could feel it. He was like, I, I'm so sorry. I, I literally cannot do this. And on social media uh, later, you could sense his emotion. Oh, it was like, really deep. It was a deep moment. He was just like, because, you know, you work so hard to get to that point. You know, yeah. it's your second night sold out. Like last night, you destroyed the place. You're going to do it again. You start to sing and nothing comes out. And all these people are just like, you know, people like flown in for this. It was yeah. a big deal. They were filming. They were filming for the legendary The Idol, that TV show. They did a whole segment that they filmed during that show. Yeah, this place is funny. It's super silent, and then it's like noise, 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 noise. And we knew that they were filming. We didn't realize they were filming a whole HBO special. A lot went on. So it was yeah. it was cool that everything, because now that I think about it, the wildest crowd I saw in L.A. Uh-huh. was for a hard summer at the Forum, and it was they it was a complete shit show. It was uh, Underworld was headlining. You had all these acts like Crystal Castles, like all these crazy acts, huge, just kids everywhere. You couldn't get in. It was just a mob scene to get in. There were so many people, and then everybody packed in the forum, and then everybody in the forum just rushed the floor, and there was no control. And I think maybe Crystal Castles played, but they they had to shut it down. It was just out of control. Mm -hmm. And those kids were not having it. And then, like, the troopers had to come in. And it was, really? like, it was one of those nights where it was just complete lawlessness. Just kids just, like, fuck the police, fuck this. Just, like, anarchy. It was amazing. And just, like, these rave kids were just, like, ready to fuck shit up. Wow. Because they came to party. And it was that point when the sort of electronic dance, it had gotten so big. It was actually bigger than the forum. And no one quite realized it until we all got there. And it was, like, oh, dude, this is not going to work. 
there's just way too many kids. And I, yeah, I saw some stuff that night. <laughs> <laughs> living room where you've got a perfect setup you've got <laughs> your tv which is showing uh Ooh, this is a this is a good game yeah it is yeah. you got the celtics and the 76ers <laughs> you've got your little desk over there your little workstation is this where you do most of your writing um we i feel like i do more at the office now oh really yeah you work downtown right yes uh i really like our office so i like to go so you're yeah. able to work at your nine to five, and then when you come home, it's it's chill time. Mostly, I mean, you're living the dream, Scott Sterling. I'm trying. That's the thing. I'm trying really, really hard. Like I actually love what I do. I love Warner Music, the company. I love Rhino. It's the coolest. We are the coolest. Yeah. Catalog label in the world. Okay, let's let's tell everybody who uh, Rhino is. I mean, Rhino. It's the, we're the the catalog arm of Warner Music. You know, when music becomes catalog legacy, we sort of take it over. And, and Warner is, is it, is it still WIA? Yeah. Is it Warner Electra? Warner, Warner Music, yeah. Warner Electra Atlantic. Atlantic yeah. Also Sire. R.I.P. my man. Who else? Like Parlophone in Europe is uh, uh-huh. under our, our jurisdiction. Uh, Roadrunner, shout out Turnstile. Oh, okay. We love Turnstile. Okay, uh, and so when you say the the archive version, what did, what did you call like catalog, it? Catalog. Catalog version. This means old. Correct. The old stuff. 100%. And if I remember correctly, Rhino was the first label to take old singles, turn them into yeah. an album. I I believe this is Nuggets, where they would just take the, the great, legendary nugget. Kind of like what Ktel did. Hold on, I might have one around here. All right. I don't mean to distract you. He's, he's, he's by the way, very clean house. Ladies, Scott Sterling is a single man. He's a bachelor. And if you came to his house, he's got this amazing outside lands uh, blanket. Oh, yeah. So he just gave me, for Record Store Day, this is the 50th anniversary of the album that started a revolution. 50 years ago they came out with Nuggets? Nuggets. It's a big deal. Yeah, Lenny K curated it, this uh, special edition. They're doing a big show up in Glendale, actually, but, but to celebrate it. Correct me if I'm wrong. The idea was there was all these 45s in the 60s. Right. And they come and went. And then when, was it CDs that, that, that made, uh, well, not if it was 50 years ago. It was 50 years ago. It that's, started, it was the late 70s. 70s. It was like, it was late 70s. So was it an answer to KTEL, do you think? I mean, I think it was a lot of things. I mean, the original Rhino was a really cool, high-concept idea. You know, they really had an idea of doing something really cool and really kind of homemade and really indie within the construct of a major label. It, it, to me, it's the epitome of curation. Yeah, ex- exactly. And that was the whole idea. It was just like, we can actually take all what you think is just junk and just stuff and make it into these really cool compilations and really cool collections that people love and cherish to this day. Like the 50th anniversary of Nuggets is a big deal. Like that record set off so many like sonic revolutions. You can go from Nuggets to the Ramones to so many different things, you know. And The, the next step after Nuggets was a revolutionary was 
I believe Rhino was the first to create a box set. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to think so. Which is just a spinoff of this, but it's for one artist. Instead of a whole bunch of quote-unquote one-hit wonders, and you put it together on, on a special record so that you don't have to run out and buy all those singles, um, you, had, you had nuggets. But if you really loved an artist, and I'm thinking especially uh, like Bob, Bob Dylan's... Um, his bootleg series. Well, I guess that wasn't Rhino, but th- but the concept was simple, right. which was let's put them all in a in a little box for these CDs, and you get four to ten CDs, and you get the entire history yeah. of and these taking guys. that idea of curation another step. You know, like applying it to. I remember getting like the the '80s box sets and these crazy contraption. Like the whole thing fell apart over years because it was so like elaborate. But yeah. it had like everything, all those one hit wonders from the eighties, your animotions, your like all those crazy, like cool new wave songs in this insane, crazy package that looked crazy on your table. Mm-hmm. And I just always loved the idea that Rhino was thinking a little bit differently and they would apply that same sort of mentality to a band and create these really cool like packages that, you know, to this day there's old Rhino out of print releases that are like holy grail for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I love that. And you'd get a cool little booklet that would teach you a little something. Exactly. Maybe you get a poster that was folded up 10 times, and <laughs> put it on your bedroom wall. Like you got more. I mean, and brilliantly, Rhino didn't really discount this. So you paid 50 bucks for <laughs> four CDs. Because when you really, it's uh, shout out Jason Elzey to sort of, remind me about the passion for the artist when you really have a passion for the artist that you work with you want to put together something that the artist the artist themselves will be proud of and as a fan you're like this is a cool thing to have mm-hmm. and so you just apply that to everything you do and then it's reflective of everybody you know it's not just like a job and that that's my thing it's like i recently saw a tweet that is like if you know someone in the music industry who's not a hardcore music nerd don't trust that person Good. And I follow those rules explicitly. Like I'm it's here good. for a reason, you know, like I'm not just here to collect a check. It's like right. this shit means something to us. And so, so, so over time, it, I feel like uh, Rhino has been able to pull in quote unquote older music. Cause like even the replacements are on, are on, yeah, that's, which, that's, which is hard for me yeah. to believe that they're considered old. That's legacy but, music. Yeah. But those re-releases of all those replacement albums are, so dear to yeah. real fans. <laughs> yeah, because the people that put them together are real fans. Mm-hmm. It's like you put it together because they go through that stuff and they're just like, ah, like they but, have the same reaction. Than me, because I would have just put it out, right. out of greatest hits. <laughs> right. They have right. all the old tapes. Right. They have all this old stuff and they're able to remaster it. They're able to just just rearrange re- it. Like it's, it's it's really amazing to me. Not only that Rhino has survived when a lot of labels haven't, but I think they're better now than ever. I would agree. I hundred percent. I feel like we are firing on all cylinders at this point for a lot of reasons. You know, a lot of things that have happened out of our control were to our benefit. You know, I mean things get weird and people cling to what they know and things got really, really weird and people really clung to what they knew. And as a result, artists like Fleetwood Mac had their best year in decades, you know, like, during, during COVID yeah, of that, yeah. that uh, skateboarding guy, it, the, it, magic, you know, it's, it's magic. <laughs> these things that happen, but you know, a, a confluence of it all comes together. Yeah. And you well, know. one of the things that Rhino did wisely was hire you to be the voice of them on social media. I like to think so. Is this a secret? 
eh, I mean, I'm not like... Do you the, want me to stop this portion? Well, it's... I mean, I'm part of a team that works yes. on Rhino Social. It's not like I run anything. I mean, I have sort of... Do you do most of the tweets? I've become... It's a team. It's a team effort. <laughs> it's a team effort. You know. <laughs> I feel like I hear Scott Sterling every time I see a tweet coming out you of You know, Rhino. I mean, we definitely try to have a voice. It's very important to, to develop a Rhino voice. Okay. I've, you know, that's been something that's very dear to me that we have a... A voice and a position and kind of a personality because that's who we are. I mean, we're Rhino. We're not just like some label. Like we're Rhino. Like we're a little left to center. We're a little whacked out. We're a little crazy. But but, it, but again, it it is a reflection of you because there are no genres. Right. Oh yeah. No, it's you, all good. You're not going to see <laughs> right. on the yeah. the socials of Rhino. It's all good because again, it's 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 Christopher Cross. I mean, Christopher Cross, tremendous. <laughs> This guy is outstanding. Like the, the, it's the music. It always comes back to the music. Mm-hmm. We're working with the, some of the best music ever recorded. So it makes what we do really, really easy. Because my thing is like, okay, this is the best music ever recorded. What's just a really fun way to present it to the world? And we're just really fortunate. The music is so good that we have these built-in fans. And they're just like so hungry for someone to take their music seriously. And we do. And it's a, it's a very reciprocal relationship. You know, I feel very close with a lot of people um, that we speak with on social media. Shout out to Matt in Australia, the world's <laughs> premier Madonna fan. Oh. The number one. <laughs> Mike Kilman, you're up there too, but Matt, baby, <laughs> respect to Australia all day. Uh, what, can you, I'll give you a little, a little shout out on what Rhino has put out recently. Is there anything new or forthcoming that you want I to mean, talk about? I can, I would be remiss not to mention the new Velvet Underground, loaded, fully loaded. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, it's a fully reloaded edition. Okay. It's a very famous, it's the, the, the legendary album, Velvet Underground, loaded, the one that came double-packed with Sweet Jane and rock and roll. This is Lou Reed at his finest, just killing everything. Um, so it's they, that... Let's, let's just talk about those two songs for a second. Sure. They seem so basic today. Right. Especially rock and roll. Yeah. But at the time, was it as overlooked as people? Absolutely. Like you go back and look at like, it's, it's funny. The Velvet Underground and the Ramones are the two that I will never, ever understand what was happening in America yeah. because they just never sold records. But, but the Ramones had a movie. They never sold records. Even with the movie? They never sold. It, their it, best, like you look, look at, go to their Billboard rankings. Like their best, best selling album was End of the Century. And I think it was like, maybe number 40 on the top 100 like they never sold records they never wow. they, they couldn't sell records to save their lives and again shout out to mr stein for not dropping them roll with those dudes through so many ups and downs yeah. they were not an easy band it was really really difficult and, and they did everything they did everything they tried to literally, make hits yeah they, they did they were produced yeah. by uh uh they did everything they uh, could uh, 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 phil Spector. yeah they that, and that was their best-selling album End of that, the century. That was end of the century. Was was That's that one? their best-selling album? <laughs> I mean, I could be. I'll double check. No, but no, I'm, no, no, no. I just like to be precise. To about me, these it's things. just one beautiful box set of of great music. Even though they, I don't think they had a box set, did they? The Ramones. Yeah. Well, now the Ramones have some box sets. Oh, do they? Us. Yeah. Okay. But to me, the Ramones are just one hunk of just yeah. But it's music my, that I play from beginning to yeah. end. When I look back historically. For me, I was, uh, it's probably not the right comparison, but I can't help it. I compare the Ramones to Kiss. And oh. I look at them, and I'm like, in my head, the Ramones should have been as big as Kiss. Huh. 
Huh. Because while Kiss were these sensational clown explosions, the Ramones to me looked like what I would think most kids think they look like. Just these punk kids right. just ripping these songs faster than anybody is playing. Yeah. And just, you know, one, two, three, four, song, song, song. I mean, to me, as a kid, that's just like, it's candy. Everything about them is candy. But there were so many layers. I was recently talking to Jerry Peterson, Jerry Vile, Detroit legend, about this, about why the Ramones couldn't break through in the 70s. And he was trying to give me some perspective that back then, they, in the same way we were talking about Lou Reed and Velvet Underground, what seems so basic and so obvious now back then was revolutionary, cutting edge, terrifying. Like radio programmers, like the Ramones, like, whoa, that's like a bunch of ugly girls. Like what's happening over there? <laughs> they couldn't relate. And Jerry explained something to me I didn't think about. The fact that they, that they were making rock music without guitar solos mm -hmm. was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And because these... And these, not in a good way. <laughs> well, because these rock and roll DJs love guitar solos. And so it was like they were bucking the system in ways that like, I'm like, guitar solos, he's like, trust me, it was an issue. Mm -hmm. There were no guitar solos. It's like, those guys can't even play. All right, now I know I'm, I'm on uh, shaky ground when I say this to a man from Detroit. Home of Detroit Rock City. Yeah, End of the Century is their best-selling record. It peaked at number 44 on the Billboard 200. That's their best-selling. And that was in 1980. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, we're talking about albums like the Ramones peaks at 111. Their first. Yeah. Rocket to Russia, hey, 49. Mm -hmm. You know, Road to Ruin, 103. Like, these are some of the greatest records ever recorded. And, like... People just did not respond. Am I sexist to believe in order to break through the top 40, women have to buy your record? I don't think that's sexist. And can can, can I you think, do it with just dudes is what I'm asking. Yes. Because you can. I, I think that we have just... I mean, again, this is maybe me Elvis looking... Elvis Costello doesn't have top 40 but, hits. But ACDC and Rush do. Good point. And that's... It, it, rock and roll, like classic... like dudes have taken that stuff to pretty high heights. You know, Metallica is another band. Yeah, I don't think point. a lot of ladies, I mean, again, I don't, want to be, million albums. I don't want to be misogynist or sexist, but, you know, when I've been in, say, a Metallica show, yeah. ACDC show, yeah. Rush, it's guys. It's a lot of dudes. Yeah, it's a lot of dudes. So it, you can, but it's, it's, it's not easy. And the Ramones, the, because of the time that they came out, had a lot going against them. right. Because there was no one to kind of champion the other side. And again, this is blasphemous. I think the Ramones had better songs and a lot more of them than Kiss. 100%. That's why. I, you would agree with that? I would. I would. Because you I was love, at. I was, love Kiss. I was also of a certain age. You know, like I'm not so blind in fandom to, to not understand that I was just one of those kids who was at, a, at the right place at the right time. Yeah. You know, like when Kiss and Bill Coyne and Neil Bogart and all those guys had that genius idea. Yeah. It was kids like me they had in mind. Right. Because trust me, there's millions of us around the world that are just whacked out over this ridiculous band. But it was a timing thing, the time, the place. And for me, it was a total gateway drug. It, it opened me up to the idea of rock and bands. And I went from Kiss right into Cheap Trick. And from mm. Cheap Trick, I was all good. <laughs> it was all right. good. You know, it takes you right down a certain path. And so... But I can recognize where it wasn't always the best, but it, it was what it was. And there were such an interesting collection of people. And Ace Frehley still is one of the most bizarre and interesting guitar players of the 70s. <laughs> Maybe not the best, but like his style is so unique. And like 
the whole two octave bend thing. It's just, he's a quirky, quirky dude. And he created some stuff that had some staying power. Like, mm-hmm. But the Ramones definitely, and that's why I'm just like, why were they not huge? And Jerry's like, because they were like the exact opposite of everything that was popular in rock at the time. Let's talk about Coachella. For oh, a yes. Second. The legendary. Because Coachella's coming up soon. Real soon. They just put out a, a video today where they're sending everyone who bought tickets a collection of like air tags to attach to all your things. So if you lose your wallet, your keys, it's really cool. It's a box of just all these tags that you attach to all of your stuff. So, like, that way, I mean, four air tags is 100 bucks. And they're sending everybody that it's a really cool video it's on coachella.com right and now and they announced today that the whole thing's going to be on youtube both weekends first time every band right that's- because that's how coachella thrives people we all have our personal biases for against the only reason coachella has survived and thrived is because they were never afraid to evolve and change even when it didn't seem like the right thing to do to the, what seemed to be their primary fan base i give the credit to paul Tolette. Oh, of course he's a visionary Absolutely. <laughs> have, have you gotten to interview him on the record? Never on the record because he doesn't really do that. I've come close. I've had opportunities to chat with him personally. Mm-hmm. I really like Paul because he's another big music nerd. He's a big loves, music. Loves music. Just a big geek. And whenever big geeks really get to flex, things like Coach Hell is what happened. Like he's just a big geek who had a chance to really do something. And he's always had the vision to just stay a step forward. You know, I'll, I'll never forget the year he booked Paul McCartney and all the hipsters cried foul. And then <laughs> Paul McCartney destroyed the place. And they're like, oh, right, Paul McCartney. Same thing with Roger Waters. Oh, my God, I can't believe this. Old. He comes and just kills everybody. And you're like, the pig oh, flew man. away that night. Flew away. Amazing or, or, show. Or how about just, I mean, it's so revolutionary to have two weekends yeah. of the same lineup. Nobody's done that. And it's when you get, when you, it's with great power comes great responsibility. And I give them the props that as the power got bigger, they found ways to kind of utilize it in ways that just made it bigger, spread more music, made it a bigger festival, even in ways that maybe I didn't like or a lot of people didn't like. But it kept Coachella vital. It keeps it, because that's a hard thing to maintain that kind of mystique, that kind of coolness, especially when everyone's gone and they've gone twice and you've seen every celebrity, you've seen every act. How do you keep it fresh in 2023? And so I see things like the air tags, et cetera, as like mm-hmm. these little ways to remind the new generations, like this, it's your turn now. Come and on, and how go. do you keep the music fresh? And one of the things that he did was he had Blackpink in there years ago. That, and it's and now they're headlining. It's very similar to what he did with the classic rock. He took big chances because he saw the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. The world saw Coachella one way, and he's like, actually, it's broader than that. Right. Actually, I can have classic rock. I can have K-pop. I can do all these things. And you get all upset, and it's like, oh, you know. like For me, the greatest Coachella set will always be Prince. Yes. But it, by the same token, you look at what Beyonce achieved at Coachella, oh. and that was just, you know. That's, See, I might have to put that above Prince. It's it, 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 <laughs> Only because of this. The overall she just production, had a baby. Yeah. But it's not even that. It's For me, with Beyonce. And the marching band. It was the ripped off from Kanye. It was the actual production though. And it was yes. production with in conjunction with the cameras. So even yes. if you were at home, you got this experience that was larger than 
life. Like yes. what we saw on TV was actually better than what they saw at Coachella. <laughs> well, because she had the, the costume change. And they also, the, the working with the cameras, the direction. Right. And so it's, you know, that's a good point. It's because, that level of production. Because even if you have the VIP wristband and you're a little off, off the set, set right. or stage, you don't get all those angles. And if you, exactly, if you look, like she interacts with the camera in really interesting ways at really interesting points where she's looking up She's looking behind herself, like because she knows her cues, and so she's playing to us in a way that none of them are getting, and so we're getting a different experience that's just tremendous. A lot of people would say Daft Punk is the greatest uh, performance. Were you at that show? <laughs> that's the one I missed. No, what yeah. happened? Why that's a long you story. I was uh, I had to fly to Detroit the very last minute for a very very important reason. Oh, all right, fine. Yeah, but it was very personal, but. Uh, that was the most important for a lot of reasons mm -hmm. in a different way. And okay. it's, it's more kind of for electronic music and for Daft Punk. And, right. you know, I'd never miss them after that. Will you be going to this Coachella, Scott Sterling? No, Coachella is behind me now. Coachella is, Are you will, too old for Coachella? You, you're never too old for Coachella. Oh, really? Never, never. Really? I mean, you've got to... No, of course not. No, Coachella is for everybody. I like, like that. Yeah, you're never too old. My thing is that for, for me, the, the effort... The energy, the time, the money required yeah. to really enjoy Coachella for it, me, it's you know it it's, it just doesn't line up. You know? It has to be given to you now at your age. Yeah, and it's not even the, an age I'm the thing, same way. I'm or not, not even a privilege thing. But it's like, are you going to pay two grand for this? Of course not. Of course not. You know, it's you because know, the price point of concerts is ridiculous now. The pandemic, while we weren't looking. They completely subverted the entire ticket industry. It's all messed up. I'm not afraid to say it. It's not cool. We don't like it. Those of us that enjoy music and going to concerts don't like this bullshit that's going on. We want to be able to see shows. Mm -hmm. Dynamic pricing is not cool. Like we understand that like there's more money to be made, but this is there's something more important here at stake. There's other ways to make money. You you all know how to do it. You've been doing it forever. Like just give us this one thing. Just let us get in the door. We just want to go to the show. Seriously, we just want to go to the show. And God bless you, Robert Smith. Thank you for doing what you can to get your fans into the show. That's all we're trying to do. One thing I learned from the... Just want to go to the show, man. One, the thing I learned from the Green Day Weezer Fall Out Boy show at Dodger Stadium. Right. Amen. God bless Whatever that was God. called. Right. If you let the kids show up... Best time. They'll stand in line for the shirts. Make your money off the merch. Maybe. <laughs> Is that and the fifteen dollar soda pop? But you know, and the eight dollar pretzel. We have to talk about merch. We should talk about the venues and venues taking cuts of merch. Are they? Oh yeah, oh yeah, and taking really obscene cuts out of merch. Mm. And the bands who sometimes won't sell merch because the cut is so big that they'd have to raise the price so high they don't want to screw their fans. You know, Stereolab went on social media and was like, "Yo, if you're in this city, this city, this city, go to our website." Because the venues are just killing us. We can't do it. Wow. You know, and so like, again, it's like. So this is why I'm seeing $50 concert t-shirts. Amen. Exactly. Because everybody's trying to make their nut and the venue's like, okay, we need this percentage. And the band's like, okay, we got to mark it up. There. And so everything is out of whack. Mm -hmm. And still we pay. Still, I paid for a main floor Depeche Mode ticket and I don't. I don't regret a penny of it. Yeah. I paid way too much for my hoodie at that show, and I don't regret a penny of it. Mm -hmm. That's how important it is to us. Mm -hmm. Just give us a little something. Shouldn't it, your your story about staying in line in the snow? 
Oh, yeah. And get in front row. Oh, yeah. That's who deserves the front row. That's what I'm talking about. And so they create these verified fan. Verified fan is bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) I've been seeing The Cure since 1984. 1984, Michigan Theater, Ann Arbor, Michigan, the top tour. Have you heard the top album? Starts with Shake Dog Shake. (laughs) We drove through a blizzard in Michigan (laughs) to Ann Arbor. I had friends way cooler than me that told me about The Cure and took me to this show, and it fried my brain. Yeah. It changed me. I've seen them every tour since. I've seen them every week can see them. I've seen The Cure at the Pantages Theater. Mm. I love The Cure so much. They when did they it. play The Pantages? They played The Pantages. I have a flyer around here somewhere and the T-shirt. They, did, uh, they were doing different albums from their early see? eras. See, if you let the kids back. go, they'll buy the T-shirt. And we'll save it forever. Yeah. I mean, fans, we're real. We're real out here. And we're just like, we just want to be a part of it. And that's why I love Rhino and interacting with fans on social media because Mm -hmm. you see it up close. And I'm going to shout out again, Madonna's fans. Out of all fans in this world, no artist has fans as hardcore and dedicated as Madonna. If you do, I dare you to step to her people. I'll I'll take her fans (laughs) in a fist fight against anybody. Her fans are insane, amazing, fantastic. The love they show her is incredible. I've seen nothing like it, and I've seen a lot of love directed at artists. She has struck a chord with her people that's really special. name venues okay give me one band or two that you saw there okay i love that troubadour the troubadour oh my gosh what's a really good troubadour show just off uh, the top of your head who comes to your mind uh heim heim and friends really We're really really fun with their parents up in the in the, in the, the how great is that band oh i love those ladies so much sd sd Haim, i love you so much yeah yeah she's my favorite she's the bass player with the the bass, faces bass face all day right but, but what I also like about them is that's, an, that's their own sound. Oh, yeah. They've got a very unique thing going on. They're outstanding. Roxy. The Roxy Generation... Oh, uh, no. I, it was a double shot. Generation Sex, which was Generation X plus Sex Pistols. So you had Billy Idol. You had Steve Jones. Like, this is, so replacing Johnny was Billy Idol? Right. Because he was doing the Generation X stuff. Because oh. that's his band was right, Generation right. X. And then, yeah, it was Generation Sex. I actually saw the Sex Pistols at the Roxy, like the, the actual Sex Pistols. The, the Filthy Lucra uh, yeah, show? Yeah, the, the kickoff thing. And I saw Amy Winehouse at the Roxy. You did That's not. the one I have to talk about. Whoa. Because I'll never forget it. I was working at over on Wilshire at Blueprint Test Preparation LSAT. Shout out Blueprint. <laughs> and tickets went on sale at the Roxy. I called and got them by phone. I called on the phone to the Roxy. The woman said I was the first person to call. <laughs> and I got my ticket. And yeah, by that, that show was incredible, incredible, incredible. I saw her twice. I saw her there and at Coachella. She was all that and more. One of the greatest, greatest singers I've ever seen. Her stage presence was insane in the Roxy. And that was the night I saw Bruce Willis make out with Courtney Love. No. Yes. I love that. Yeah, people saw that. That was documented. Wow. That was a wild night at the Roxy, baby. Good times. Amy Winehouse had people open, okay? It was beautiful. Beautiful. I love the Roxy. A lot of great memories in that joint. Irvine Meadows. 
Oh, wow. I never really, I did a lot of K-Rock Rini roast, actually, at <laughs> Irvine Meadows. That's when I think of Irvine Meadows. I think of, like, interviewing uh, Florence Welch with a big cast on her foot. Uh-huh. A beautiful one. Just what a lovely spirit. Florence Welch was fantastic. Uh, hanging out with the guys from Muse. Super cool. Love Muse. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I, Irvine Meadows. Irvine Meadows is like my K-Rock era. It's like the the rock radio like era. Like Echo out. slash Echoplex. Oh my goodness. Um, a big one there was Deer Hunter on the Cryptograms tour. Look at you going deep with Dude, this alternative Bradford music. Cox, Bradford Cox was like channeling some like, I don't even know, David Bowie times Gigi Allen. He came out in this crazy... Really? That night was insane. How do you channel? What? what? Have you ever seen we're, Bradford we're... Cox? He's this no. like six foot something. He's very tall, gangly. He's kind of got this. Uh, but but what element of Gigi Allen was he? It's just there's this that era of Deer Hunter. He was was his pants off. He wore a dress, <laughs> like a kind of a Little House on the Prairie type white dress with this crazy makeup smear on his face. There was a lot of screaming, a lot of intensity. That album still is just. It's incredible. Cryptograms by Deer Hunter. And that night it was them and the ponies and somebody else. But that Deer Hunter set was like transcendental. Uh, let's just say, yeah, I should probably leave that part out. LA Coliseum. Oh, man. I was there at the, uh, the big uh, hard rave when the poor 15-year-old girl died. Uh, Which believe. put a damper on raves in L.A. for a long time. A long, I mean, they had to... Uh, actually, that was Electric Daisy Carnival. It was the last EDC in L.A. The girl, she died. She was 15 of uh, OD. And so they had to move the whole thing to Vegas. And that's how that whole thing started. Because L.A. was like, yo, you're done. Like, yeah. uh, uh, that, that's the big outdoor football stadium. Yeah. Sports arena. Daft Punk. You, no, no, no. Did you ever see anything at the sports arena? Yeah, Daft Punk. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Daft Punk 2007 in the sports arena. Daft Punk, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, no, it's it's one of the like top five greatest shows of my life. Like that show was like, I understand why the Coachella Daft Punk show was so effective for people because that night at the sports arena was like, there was a point towards the end of the show where you were basically, you know, the end of Close Encounters when he's going up in the ship. <laughs> And he's looking around and it's like he's inside the ship and he's seeing all the aliens. And there's a point in the end of that show where they flip some switch and all like all these tricked out lights that you had not seen for the entire show suddenly lit up. And I swear to you, we were inside the mothership at the end of Close Encounters. I almost fainted. It was incredible. <laughs> like that was the night I realized that Human After All is my favorite Daft Punk record by a mile. Hmm. And I used to despise that record. I was so disappointed and upset because it was so like two-dimensional and flat and what is this all about and then now i'm just like i remember that show and then watching the movie ex machina <laughs> those two things together i was like human after all is the best daft punk record so the, another reason that people should go to live shows because in, in live performances sometimes they can pull things out that you either missed by listening to it in your car because i realized that human after all was just basically those first three Daft Punk records, you have Homework, Discovery, Homework, Discovery, Human After All, that, that, that little trilogy of records, they're all basically one huge record and they all fit together in this way that none of us knew until the Alive tour when they started layering the songs and you were just like, oh my God. And so all this stuff that sounded to me like so flat and one dimensional on Human After All suddenly came alive in this whole new way where that 
That was the power. That it was so flat and so one-dimensional. And those songs are so brutal. I mean, hardcore, suicide, like heavy metal, kill em all, Metallica, brutal. But it's electronic. And it's just, they're just pummeling you with truth in a way that's, it's hardcore, man. Those dudes are serious. <laughs> let's, let's wrap it up with food in Mid-City. Oh, yeah, we got some. We got a little bit. Mid-City, you're going to see some black people over here. Absolutely. But I don't see a lot. I see Stevie's on the Strip on Pico. Right. But I don't see a lot of soul food. I mean, I guess Roscoe's, but isn't Roscoe's oh, leaving? soul food, right. Yeah. Well, Roscoe's oh. just moved down the block to Washington. Right. Allegedly, the food at the new one is not good. Yeah. I was never a big fan of Roscoe's. And I used to be, but uh, the last two times I got Roscoe's, it was terrible. Yeah. And this was also in the new era with Gus's. And mm. Gus's fried chicken is now eating Roscoe's lunch two times over. They may not have waffles, but that hot chicken is on point. Do we consider that mid-city? It's right down the street. All right, fine. And plus, the, 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 the boundaries of mid-city are pretty loose. They are. I've looked them up, and there's like a hundred. <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's kind of nebulous. Yeah. I mean, when I first even learned about it, it was the rapper Merce. I interviewed for LA Weekly. Merce is the man. Shout out Merce. That dude's amazing. And we were sitting in front of the uh, Sky Tacos, the old Sky Tacos. And he was like, this is Sky Tacos in Mid-City. He like, laid it out. And I was like, oh, Mid-City. Like, my area is actually really cool. Like, I live in a cool part of LA. And like, he turned me on to Mid-City even being a thing. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, we have, there, there is the new Roscoe's. We got but yeah. there's like their CJ's diner for breakfast. Love CJ's. C, you, know, you know what? I'm sorry. I forgot that on the list. What's that? Perfect for breakfast. It, oh, it, CJ's it, is the Even though there's, I think there's all Mexican guys cooking. Yeah. It does taste like soul food. Yeah. And CJ's also is the place where I saw at the same time, Jill Scott at one table and Earl Sweatshirt at another table oh. having brunch. Same time. <laughs> it has, has Earl Sweatshirt lived up to his potential? Yes and no. He's an incredible artist, sweatshirt, incredible artist. He's, but, you know, it's translating that into record sales, success, blah, 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 is, is, is a whole other animal. And, and, and it's hard to live in the shadow of Tyler, right? That's what I'm, Tyler is such a tremendous talent and mm-hmm. ha- always has been. I love that kid from day one. People did not understand him until later. I saw him from jump. Love Tyler, the creator. You, you you went to the Roxy show where he stood on the, the tables and the police came. Dude, wolf, Wolfgang, kill them all. Dude. Back in the day, dude. Probably, wolf. That was probably the most punk rock review KPCC, now LAist, has ever run. It was a punk rock moment. I mean, I saw Tyler in the middle of sunset getting handcuffed by the cops. It was some <laughs> punk rock shit, man. Kids running around screaming. You know, Earl Sweatshirt was still off in his boarding school era. Like, yeah. See, L.A., L.A., L.A. music is so fantastic. Tyler, the Wolfgang crew. I mean, I'm wearing, actually, on purpose, this is a band called Zulu from Los Angeles. Huge shout-out to Zulu, my favorite band. Last year, Turnstile broke open the whole hardcore scene out of Baltimore. Yep. They got so big that people started looking for other hardcore bands. Zulu is L.A. We're, they're all black. They're black as fuck, actually. Really? They, uh, they, they're black. <laughs> they call themselves Black Power Violence taking the whole idea of, black, of power violence, which is its own scene, and making it black power violence. And they mush it all together. It's very bad brainsy. There's mm-hmm. like, they can go from like 
a sweet Curtis Mayfield hook to just the most brutal hardcore riff and do it like really, really fast and back and forth. And there's a lot of energy and I'm just, I'm just so excited to see a young band like that. They make my heart sing. I love Zulu so much. They're the best. Give them all your money. Buy all their stuff. Go see them. Because they're the shit. Turnstile, by the way, is going to open for Metallica in yes, some of these are. shows. Yes, they are. I love Turnstile. That was one of the best shows I saw. I saw so many good shows last year, and Turnstile at the Shrine was a life-affirming moment. Beautiful band. Like they say, thank you for letting me see myself. <laughs> Scott Sterling, you are the man. I do what I can with what I can. <laughs> uh, tell people uh, your Twitter handle. Please. We have a lot of fun on Twitter. Come talk to no, me. What, what's your Twitter handle? Oh, I'm uh, ST Sterling. At ST Sterling, as in Scott Timothy Sterling. ST Sterling. Um, yeah, come at me at Twitter. There's a lot of Scott Sterlings out there. I'm still, so far, the only black one. Uh, I'm not the one, the soccer player with the face and the ball. That's not me. I'm not the promoter that used to do uh, Silver Lake Lounge. Although he's a very cool Scott Sterling. I like him. Shout out. Also from Detroit. How about that? What's your favorite Silver Lake Lounge? Uh, uh, oh, easy. The very first TV on the radio show ever in LA. They played there? That was their very, very first show. They wow. showed up and the, somewhere on the airplane, they crushed their sampler. And so they did the whole show with just their guitars. And I remember I accosted Tunde because I wanted a t-shirt. And they had no merch. And he was just like, this whole tour is a fail. And I was like, you guys are the best band in America, and I love you. And uh, yeah, Silver Lake Lounge. Orpheum. Orpheum, The weekend, baby. Oh. The weekend. He played in that beautiful place. Yeah. And they had the balloons with the XO on them. I also saw The Who at the Orpheum during E3, and they were tremendous. God, The Who was fantastic at the Orpheum. Dolce still had it. Oh, my God. Like, there's no tomorrow. Ace Hotel. Casey Musgraves with special guest, Soccer Mommy. Casey Musgraves, I had second row center for that show. People are going to think that I edited this. Yeah, this no. is all one take. Yeah, yeah I love No Casey, planning. <laughs> Casey Musgraves made me cry like a baby that night. Okay, I'm going to try to stump you on this one. I love her so much. I love you, Casey Musgraves. The Conga Room. Dude, the Conga Room? Okay. Diplo opening <laughs> for DJ Marlboro from Brazil. It was like a Tuesday or Wednesday night, and DJ Marlboro is this huge DJ in Brazil. So I get to this spot, and this place is going off like New Year's Eve. It's all Brazilians. Conga Room is just pumping. And here's, here's Diplo. He's like, hey, what's up? And that, that was when I decided to put him on the cover of a magazine, and he had never been on the cover of a magazine. And he was just like, why are you putting me on the cover? You run out of people? And I said, no, Mr. Diplo. I think that you've got a little something that people need to know about. And so we kind of broke down that night. And then, really? and then, you know, Diplo. Were you his first, the, the, the first cover? You think? He had never been on a cover. Look and at I you. put him on that cover. I did that for a couple people. I'm very proud of that fact. I Who did, else? Uh, TV on the radio had never been on a magazine cover. Mm -hmm. I put them on the first cover. I was really proud of that. Um, Club Nokia. Club Nokia, probably. Trying to stump you. Can I stump you? Club Nokia, probably the Pretenders. Look at you. Probably the Pretenders. I've seen some. Ooh, probably Brian Ferry. I saw a really amazing really? Brian Ferry show at Club Nokia. What a tiny place for him. Yeah, it was really cool to see him up close like that. That was fantastic. You're unstumpable. I just, I. You have been to all the I venues. I mean, I like to think about the venues that we've lost. Like, remember the Knitting Factory? Loved it. Dude, we saw PJ Harvey at the Knitting Factory. Like, yeah. we were right in her face at the Knitting Factory. I, I saw, saw a tremendous Beach House show at the Knitting Ooh. Factory. 
Yeah. What I, is even there? Is anything even in that I think spot? it's like a shoe store. <laughs> yeah, it's, but yeah, isn't it's that like ridiculous? It's so sad. It's so sad. I saw the Roots do a tremendous show at Knitting Factory back in the day. <laughs> Just outstanding. Uh, Last summer, Digwell Planets at the Lodge Room at Jazz is Dead. Jazz is Dead is an incredible series. Mm-hmm. Digwell Planets, oh my God. Yep. Oh, what a show. Support Jazz is Dead. Highland Park. I mean, I'm, I know I'm on Mid-City, but... I feel Highland Park. That was a, a nice night. I, yeah, it was a good night to be out. On the Rocks. On the Rocks. like It's the little tiny bar above the Roxy. Never been up there. You got All right. Me. I you stopped, got me. Finally. You got me. Never finally. been up there. It took us. Never been up there. Never been up Scott there. Scott Sterling, you're the man. I've been to the, the, the Masonic, that little room at the Hollywood Forever. I saw Clams Casino, and he signed my record. Because I love those Clams Casino Did records. you see Lana play uh, The Cemetery? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen Lana. Me and Lana, we go way back. I mean, I saw her when she premiered um, a video at the Arrow in Santa Monica. That was the first time I met her. Wow. Because I was just walking up to the venue. I saw a little crowd at the backstage door, and there's Lana just kicking it with the fans. So I just rolled wow. back there and said hey to her. She's always super cool to the people, Lana. Right. You're a good one, Lana. <laughs> she just came out with a brand new record. Yes, she did. That... I'm not crazy about. I mean, I listen to it a lot because I I go to sleep to Lana, right? Because she's my little dreamy angel. There you go, a little stony dreamy angel yeah. that likes weed and I think black old men. Hey, Lana Lana has created a, a, a really distinct persona, and it's uh, she's one of those artists that it doesn't really matter what we think about her. Like she's another one she's another level her fans will take her as far as she wants to go that lady she can sell as many tickets as she wants any night of the week in any city in this country and and i feel like just like you and me she's the perfect transplant to la oh yeah in that she puts it high on top of a pedestal and does her best to incorporate as much of la as she can in her videos good bad and ugly you know like all, all of it like and that's what i love about la i mean Speaking about Diplo, when we first started kind of messing around with Diplo, he was very anti-LA. And we, we actually booked him for that big Metro Mix party where I opened. I had kind of a shitty set that night, but whatever. <laughs> I was really, I wanted to put him on that platform. And that show went really, really, really well. And at the end of the show, the stage was packed with fans. He's got his shirt off in the middle. And that night, he's like, dude, it was just me and him. He's like, man. You weren't bullshitting about L.A., man. This shit is fucking lit as fuck. And he got all excited, like, L.A., man, what the fuck? I had no idea. And I was like, I told you, they don't tell, we don't tell y'all. Like, L.A. has got it going on, but all you see is the shit that you see. You've got to come and be a part of it. And he basically never left after that. He was, like, out here all the time. And that happens to a lot of people. Because even back in the day, I was like, ah, L.A., we have this idea of what L.A. is. What LA really is, is it's that, but it's so many other things. There's so much here. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in the time here, I've seen and experienced and done so many incredible things and met some people and had my heart just ripped out of my chest and stomped on and I I became a man. And like, I just, (laughs) LA is really where I feel like I've grown up and like I've learned about life, you know, like LA kind of beat me into shape in a good way that I knew I needed. And it's been a hell of a, a roller coaster ride, but I'm still on it. I'm still holding on. and still having the best fucking time. I love this city. I love LA. 
Well, we love you, Scott, and we'll see you at CJ's for brunch. Let's do it. All right. I'll call Joe Scott. <laughs> How great was Scott? You know who beat R plus one to the VIP area of Coachella? Our Patreons. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony Jordan, thank you so much for showing us all these cool people like Scott. Here's two tickets to paradise. So shout out to our Patreons, Nancy Ramaman, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Granke, Ben Welsh, Jen Adams, Trevor Wilson, Bree Wild, Dougie Gyro, Christina Up North, Robin Carey, Adam Shorn, Ben from Down Under, Chris from the ATX, and our newest Patreon, Gregor. To be a Patreon, go to patreon.com slash here in LA and give till it hurts. Also, shout out to our Angelinos. To be an Angelino, all you got to do is pay PAL or Venmo, 25 bucks or more, and we will list you on the Here in LA website or Medium blog forever. Just send your hard-earned cash to busblog at gmail.com. Want to support us, but you just blew a wad of cash on Taylor Swift's Eras concert? We did too. You can still help. Post your favorite episode on your Facebook. Oh my God, post too. Tweet something nice about us. In fact, anytime you see me tweet about an episode, just retweet it before Twitter dies. And for God's sake, tell your friends. Tell them how Here in LA is spelled. It's on Apple Podcasts and Google and Spotify. And, uh, uh, uh. Here in LA is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and a man who's played at many of the venues we mentioned, Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Songs by Orgone and Jordan Katz. Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen for inspiring this, and music lovers everywhere who keeps this culture rolling. Thank you for the party, party rockin'. rockin'. rockin'.